Thank you, and good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you all this morning, and greetings to uh, the Northeast Campus and those watching online as well. It is a, it's a privilege to be here and bring the word. It was awesome to be with many of you yesterday and think through and talk through some deep and complicated issues and rest in God's word in those. Uh, I bring you greetings from Emmanuel, Nashville. You have a church in Nashville praying for you all this morning. Uh, praying for our time in the Word together. So take comfort in that. There are those who are, who are praying that we'll be lifted up this morning. So I shared with many of you yesterday um, who are here some of my story uh, of doubt, and I don't want to dive deep into that, but just for context, uh, I just want to share a bit of that so, that so that I can set up the text that we're going to focus on this morning. Um, I grew up as a pastor's kid, grew up in the faith, was, was raised by wonderful, faithful Christian parents who taught me much of the word. But in my mid-20s, uh, so 14, 15 years ago now, um, I went through a, a period of severe doubting. Um, not doubting the, the you know, reality of God or anything like that, but wrestling with what is it that I was handed that I, that I really believe. And ultimately, the question for me was, who... Who is Jesus in my life? Um, because there was all the things I knew he was supposed to be, those things that I could describe and articulate and teach. But uh, those were not the shaping truths in my life. Uh, I was still kind of wandering and seeking and living in hypocrisy, and it brought me to a real place of crisis. And at my lowest and most disoriented in that, in that period of time, um, I was meeting with a couple of the elders from the church I was at, and they were these wonderful, faithful men who refused to give up on me or be put off by my repetitive, annoying, arrogant questions. And they just walked with me. And at that lowest place, one of those men basically encouraged me. He said, you need to set aside everything you think you know. And you need to go to the Gospels, start with Matthew, and just work your way through and, and just look at Jesus. Just get to know Jesus. That's a really hard thing to do if you think you know Jesus because you're trying, to, you're trying to do two things. One is set aside preconceptions and the next is what does the Bible really say about who Jesus is? And so, I, but I tried because what else was I going to do? I mean, it was that or just stop talking to them. And the Holy Spirit was, was kind of hemming me in. I knew that this was the right direction. I just didn't know how to do it. So I trudged my way through Matthew and I got into the book of Mark, and it felt like a slog, too, because I knew all this. I'd read all this. I had taught all this. I had written papers on all this. I was a theology major in college, for goodness sake. I took an entire class on the book of Mark. What, what do I have to learn, I said in my arrogance. And, and halfway through Mark, I stumbled across a passage that changed the trajectory of my heart. It wasn't a lightning strike. It wasn't a, you know, kind of a light, like a, a, a light bulb moment. It was a by degrees and a beginning to realize, oh, oh, that's what I missed. And that's what I want to preach on this morning is that text from Mark 9. So I'm going to read Mark 9, verses 14 to 27, and then we're going to focus down to just a couple uh, sentences within that. But I'm going to read it so that we have the context of the whole story. So this is uh, Jesus and... Um, He's just come down off of the Mount of Transfiguration, this beautiful, glorious moment. He comes down to sort of a ruckus. There's something going on. There's kind of a debate. Turns out there is a father who has brought his um, demon-possessed son to the disciples who were not with Jesus, and they couldn't heal him, and that's where we pick up the story. 
So Mark 9, 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him, him being Jesus, and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked her disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now, there's a lot in this passage, but I'm going to focus on just a few verses, and then I'm going to focus on one sentence within those verses. Um, if you heard the video introduction, you may have already clued into what that one sentence is. It's a, it's a fairly paradigm-shaping one for me, and I think for us. It's become one of the most important prayers in my life and something that I carry with me pretty much every day. Well, not pretty much. I mean, that's literally written on my arm right here. I carry it with me every day. And it encapsulates so much of what faith is and how we live it out, especially in the face of doubts. These verses, and that one sentence in particular that we're going to look at, show us what faith in the midst of doubt looks like and how Jesus responds to us when we doubt. That's what I want us to take away today. What does faith in the midst of doubt look like, and then how does Jesus respond to us in our doubts? So let me reread a couple of those verses just to, to focus us in, starting with the second part of verse 22. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, the Father says. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Now, this morning, I'm going to pose five questions. That's just sort of my outline for the text to help us think through faith in the midst of doubt and Jesus' response. So five questions are going to be kind of the five points of the sermon. Um, I'm not truly Baptist, or I would have figured out how to make it three points, but five it is. So the first question is this, what is the Father bringing to Jesus? What is the Father bringing to Jesus? Now, obviously, on the surface, it's pretty clear he's, he's bringing his son to be healed, that's what the father thinks his need is. But really deeply, it's something more than that. The father brings the same thing that we bring to Jesus, which is need, burden, helplessness. 
The text doesn't tell us how long, but he says since childhood, his son has been tormented by this demon. And by the way, that's a real thing. That's not some metaphor for a disease. This wasn't some ancient misunderstanding of medical practice. This was, this was a real live demon really trying to kill this boy. That's what Jesus was showing his authority over. So from childhood, he'd seen this. He'd seen his son tortured by a demon, and he's been able to do nothing about it, and he's found no solutions. And if you're a parent, and, and I mean, if you have a child who has the stomach bug and they're throwing up, you feel helpless. That's not life-threatening. And you, you, would, you ache to do something for your kids. This is far beyond that. And beyond being a parent, all of us can relate to reaching the point in our life when there is a problem, a, a burden, something that we go, I, I am helpless. I have no idea what to do here. So all the Father could bring to Jesus is need and burden and helplessness, which is all we can bring to Jesus often. In reality, it's all we can ever bring to Jesus. If we ever try to bring him anything else, he doesn't need it. He's got it. So all we have to bring is need. And so the father pleads with Jesus, have compassion on us. Have compassion on us. He knew enough about Jesus to be able to plead with his heart. He didn't say, use your power on my behalf. He said, have compassion on us. We need the compassion of Jesus when we reach that place where we're helpless and where we don't have any answers. And earlier in Mark, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it says, you know, Jesus arrives, the crowd is waiting for him, so he arrives on a boat, he sees the crowd, and he sees, he had compassion on them because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. His heart went out to those in need. That's the heart of Christ for those who struggle and who doubt. He had compassion And that's what the father leans on. So what did the father bring to him? Simply need. And he threw himself at the mercy of Jesus. Which leads us to our second question. How is the father bringing his need? What what kind of posture? Well, we can tell that he doesn't approach Jesus very boldly. He doesn't march up to Jesus and make any demands. He comes with doubt and with trepidation, probably weariness just an ache in his soul and his bones of, I am at wit's end. I don't know what to do. He comes with fear, fear for his son's life, fear that maybe Jesus can't do it. And we can see this in in the way that he words his question. He says, if you can do anything. Those are two qualifying words to soften the blow. This is the, the sort of, Passive, I don't want to be disappointed request. Kind of, maybe, possibly, if there's anything you might be able to do, like just, just a little bit, if it's not an inconvenience to you. Huh? Anything? That, that's the tone. He's not coming in and going, I have confidence that you can do this. He's coming in going, I don't know, anything, any little thing. It's a last gasp effort. It's the wording of someone who's on the verge of hopelessness and can't take one more disappointment. So it's not confident, it's not assured, it's not certain. So how does he come to Jesus? He brings his need in weakness and without any boldness. Now when I look at this, this does not sound like how I envision real faith. Real faith is planting your flag in confidence in God, right? It is 
It's a, it's a firm thing. It's a firm grasp on the reality of who Jesus is and what he can do, right? And at its best, faith is that. But frankly, that's part of the reason why some of us always feel like we, we stink at having faith. Because we've, we've pictured faith as this, like, people with faith are strong. And I'm not. So I'm, I stink at having faith. I'm bad. I must be a disappointment to God. And what we see here isn't confident at all. It sounds a lot more like the way I approach, uh, I approach Jesus. Maybe if, possibly, I'm going to I'm gonna try not to to claim anything, but just kind of hope against hope. And we aren't inclined to think that Jesus is going to be real thrilled or ready to help us when we approach him that way, when we approach him with doubt and we approach him weakly. We think that Jesus wants somebody who marches up to him in confidence and says, I know everything you can do and I have confidence in it, so I'm going to request it. Which leads us to our third question, which is, how does Jesus respond? If that's our conception of faith, faith is strong and it approaches Jesus boldly, and that's what makes Jesus glad, we're in for a bit of a surprise. Because Jesus immediately shows himself to be someone who, as Isaiah 42 says, will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. He doesn't respond with dismissal. Come back. Come back after you've got your stuff together. Build up your faith a little bit. Get a little bit stronger. Study a little bit more. Then, then come back and talk to me. He doesn't reprimand him. Now, there are some hard words in this text. Oh, faithless generation, how long will I be with you? That's not a reprimand of the Father as much as of his disciples. Because it goes on to talk about how this kind of demon can only be cast out with prayer. Their failure to recognize that they function in the power of Christ He's not slapping the guy down. He doesn't scoff at him. He doesn't sneer at his weakness. He's not impatient with him. He's not reluctant to help. There is no evidence here that Jesus is not ready and willing and eager to help the Father and the Son. Because Jesus' response is this. It's a reminder of who he is and what he's capable of. If you can All things are possible for one who believes. Who believes in me is implied. Jesus isn't saying all things are possible for the one who believes the most or the strongest or the best. It's who believes in me. It's a reminder to believe in and to cast our burdens on Jesus for he cares for us. And it's a reminder that belief is powerful because of its object not because of the qualities of the believer. You don't add anything to your belief in Christ. Jesus is the reason belief is strong and matters and works. We live in a culture that that loves to disembody things like belief. Just believe. It's sort of a power of positive thinking thing. The, the, The strength is in the believing. Nonsense. All that is is running really fast in the wrong direction. It's belief in Christ. There's an object, there's an aim, there's, a, there's an anchor for this. So what makes all things possible is not the strength of belief or the goodness of belief or the power of belief. It's belief in Jesus. It's bringing our needs to Jesus. And all things are possible because of who he is. What Jesus is saying is, do you know who I am? I hold all things. 
I have authority over all things. All of Mark leading up to this point, really to chapter 8, is Jesus declaring his authority over nature and medical illnesses and, and uh, spiritual forces and even, even death, and he does it on repeat, just declaring his kingship and authority over and over again. So when he says all things are possible for the one who believes, he means the one who believes in the one who has power over everything. That's why belief works, not because belief is anything in and of itself. So this response by Jesus, this, this gentle and kind heart who is merciful, is what allows the Father to respond the way he does. And his response, the Father's response to Jesus, is the best and clearest example I know of for how we can and should respond when we doubt. So we saw how Jesus responded to his request. Now we see the Father's response to Jesus. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He trusted Jesus immediately. Jesus declares who he is and what he's capable of, and the father says, I'm in. He came to Jesus uncertain. Two sentences ago, we saw him saying, if you can do anything, he's kind of hemming and hawing, he's not at all confident. And now immediately he puts his trust in Jesus once he sees who Jesus is. And he's, he came to Jesus uncertain but ready to trust. He takes Jesus at his word. There was no skepticism in him. His, his shaky faith was not because he was skeptical of Jesus, but because his problem was bigger than he was. That's pretty normal. Or you just go, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm at a loss. I don't know what to do. But he didn't question Jesus. He just didn't quite see who Jesus was in the midst of his problem. And boy, can't we all relate to that? And then he cries out, and his cry seems almost like a contradiction. I believe, help my unbelief. Those seem like opposites. How can they both be true? How can you declare your belief and confess your unbelief simultaneously? Well, if we have the mindset that belief must be pure, that faith must attain a certain level before we can bring it to Jesus, then this is nonsense. But that's not how faith works. Because what we see here is not a contradiction, but actually a complete declaration of faith. If he had simply said, I believe, he would have been lying. I believe. Really? You didn't 45 seconds ago. 45 seconds ago, you were very unsure. So what is this I believe? That sounds like you're kind of puffing yourself up. You're, you're misrepresenting yourself. You're, you're, you're not being truthful about the state of your heart. And we do that, right? We kind of tamp down our doubts and we're like, I'm going to put on a face of belief. If I, if I say it, it'll be true. Kind of, I'm going to name and claim this thing. So if he had simply said, I believe, that would have been a lie. It would have been denying the existence of his doubts or seeking to, to, to persuade himself of the confidence that he very clearly lacked. For him, for him to have an honest and complete declaration of faith, he had to pray, help my unbelief to cast himself on the mercy of Jesus and to admit his need and his weakness. So 
the two halves of that prayer, I believe that's a profession of faith. He did have enough faith because he showed up and talked to Jesus. He walked into the presence of the Son of God to say, help. That's an act of faith. And then help my unbelief is the prayer of faith. Because we never have perfect faith. Our belief is never complete. We never have total confidence. We are always ready to be rocked off of our, off of our kind of foundation. Happens to us all the time. So belief is both. It's a profession and it's a confession. Simultaneously. Because our faith isn't measured in certainty. It's not measured by how confident or sure we are of anything. It's measured by trusting Jesus with our needs and questions. So sometimes faith just looks like white knuckle clinging to Jesus when you don't have confidence at all. But you're sure not going to let go. That's faith. And it's not weaker faith, and it's not lesser faith, and it's not, it's not less pleasing to God. The father asked Jesus to help his unbelief. Where else could he go? He looked to the son of God. He looked him in the eye and he said, I need help that only you can give. Who else can we turn to and say, help my unbelief? We can get, we can get some information, but all the right answers do what? They just point us to Jesus anyway. So just go there. And he did believe, even in the midst of his doubt, coming to Jesus with anything is an act of belief. We need to get it through our stubborn, arrogant, self-sufficient heads and hearts that belief isn't a formula that's measured according to its purity. Belief must be X percent pure and good to really, like, we've now reached a standard of acceptability. Where do we get that from? It's not in the Bible. Or... Belief is a class that you need to get at least an X percent to pass. Belief is not pass-fail with a grade like that. It's just in Christ or it doesn't exist. It is or it isn't. A speck of belief is real belief. It's enough simply to cry out to Jesus, help my unbelief. And in response to this, Jesus shows the Father that anything is, in fact, possible for the one who believes and who brings their needs to him. He displays his power again and exhibits exactly why he's worth believing in. He met the Father's need and he strengthened his faith. That Father went away with two things. One was a healed son and the other was a a revelation and a realization that Jesus is the Son of God. And he can rest in that and trust in that. Now, I'm not, I would not be at all surprised if some of you are are kind of thinking, maybe not even admitting to yourself that you're thinking this, but it's there. Something along the lines of, that's great, I'm glad for him, and I wish it was true for me. But, what if I'm still burdened by doubt? That all sounds nice, but I, I don't feel relieved of doubt. I still feel guilty, I still feel far from God. And that's our fifth question. What if we are still burdened by doubt? What if belief doesn't come easily? And frankly, all of us should be asking a question, something like this, because even if we're in a place of peace with God, our relationship with Christ is in a strong and healthy place, we're going to get rocked by doubts at some point. Life, life is, is full of temptations 
and full of failures. You're going to sin. Someone's going to sin against you. Tragedies happen. Uh, the midterm elections are coming up. That's enough reason to doubt. I mean, there's, we, we have endless reasons to lack confidence. And we have an infinite reason to have confidence. But we're going to be rocked by doubt. So what if we're still burdened by that? And just to complicate matters, let me throw in a text that seems to contradict everything I've just said. Why not? James chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 has some really pointed things to say about people who still doubt. I'm talking about believing in the midst of doubt. But James says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Well then, what do we, what do we make of that? Didn't we see that the father did ask with doubt? James says, ask with no doubting. So how did the father receive from the Lord anything good? It sounds like the Bible is telling two different stories here. There's what, what happened in this interaction with Jesus, and then there's James saying, yeah, but that's not how it's supposed to work. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Well, the short answer is no, it's not. And that's always the case. That is always the answer to the question, is the Bible contradicting itself? It might be difficult to figure out why sometimes. Just hold on to that. James is talking about someone who is coming from a place of unbelieving doubt. The kind of doubt that is not looking to Jesus. The kind of doubt that is not turning its face and saying, Lord, you are the answer. Somebody who is unmoored by their doubts, who's looking for answers here and there and everywhere and turning to anything except Jesus. They're not anchored to Christ. So they're tossed around in their soul, lost, kind of flailing. When he says tossed um, like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, that's what he's talking about. They're at the mercy of any feeling or bit of teaching they find through YouTube or TikTok or books or their, you know, their conspiracy theory neighbor or whatever. And, and they're just, they're constantly like, maybe that's the answer. Maybe I can find an answer here. Maybe this, maybe that. And they're not just looking at Christ and going, I am so afraid and I'm so uncertain, but I'm certain that the answer is here. They don't come to God in dependence and belief. If they come to God at all, it's, it's to challenge as a skeptic. So when James is talking categorically about this kind of doubt, he's talking about people who are not submitting to Christ. We're talking about people who are submitting to Christ. These are two different categories of people. So don't let, don't let James make you think that you must have perfect confidence before you approach Christ or you will never receive anything from Christ. Nonsense. That's not what he's saying. Don't misconstrue it. And you are invited to bring whatever to Christ. The father approached Jesus with doubts, but with a readiness to believe. That is faith. And to anchor himself to whatever Jesus could offer. That is faith. So friends, bringing our doubts to Jesus, bringing our doubts to Jesus, hear what I'm saying, is faith. Faith is not not having doubt. Faith is bringing your doubts to Jesus. Because what else are we supposed to do? Doubts are inevitable. What can we do with them but bring them to the one who is the answer? How else are we supposed to resolve them? That's what James wants us to see. 
It's that there is no resolution to doubt outside of coming to God through Jesus Christ. He's highlighting how essential it is to look first to Christ and look only to Christ. He's the only anchor in the midst of doubt and in the midst of trial. Anything else leaves us driven and tossed by the wind. So help my unbelief. The Father's prayer is a prayer of confession, but it's a prayer of faith. And the prayer of faith comes from the gift of faith. Praying that prayer at all, if you can pray to God, help my unbelief. You know where that came from? God. God gave you the ability to ask God for help. He's already at work in your life if you can pray that prayer. He's already got you. There's no shame in this prayer. There's beauty and worship, and it's a declaration of what only Jesus can do. It sounds like a prayer of weakness. It's really a prayer of praise. I believe, help my unbelief, is a prayer for all Christians at all stages of life. We don't get to outgrow this. It's as relevant to you now as it is to your grandparents as it is to a preschooler. Life will always bring seasons and circumstances that cause us to have questions and doubts. So we must always continually live in the spirit of prayer, I believe, help my unbelief, over and over again. Let me conclude with this. Sometimes praying help my unbelief actually comes easier than the other half of the prayer. Sometimes we, we can see clearly our weakness and our failures and our doubts. And so praying help my unbelief, you're like, well, yeah, that's all I have. I'm chock full of unbelief. But we can't honestly bring ourselves to pray, I believe. Sometimes we are so overwhelmed by our doubts that we've lost sight of what we do believe in. We feel like failures and like our faith is so small, maybe even absent. But we must pray, I believe, as well. We need both halves of this prayer. So yeah, we do bring our needs to Jesus. But when we are tossed by the waves of circumstance, what is our anchor? It is what we believe in. What do we believe? We believe that God is who he says he is throughout scripture. He is loving. He is good. He's powerful. He's present. He's just. He's patient. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We believe that his word is perfect and sufficient. It's a revelation of who he is so that we are able to hear from him and truly know him. So when we pray, I believe, we're professing that God is who he says he is, and we know this through the word that he gave us. We believe that he keeps his promises. We believe that he's unchanging and constant, like we sang in that wonderful song just before the sermon. And because he's unchanging and because all of this is true, we can always rely on him. So in the midst of our doubts, we can, we can go to Christ with our doubts, but we cling to the reality of who God is. We preach this stuff to ourselves. We turn time and again to God's word to listen to Jesus. We tell our doubts, we tell our doubts, we talk to our doubts, and we tell them the truth of Jesus. We tell our pain the truth of Jesus. We tell our fears the truth of Jesus. We tell our temptations the truth of Jesus. Y'all, I did, this isn't in my manuscript, but it's, I think it needs saying. 
I pastored a church with a lot of people about the same age as this church, and I am so tired, so tired of talking to young guys about porn. They're so sick of looking at porn. You know what your addiction to porn needs? It needs the truth of Jesus. It's your, you doubt, so many of your doubts, your, your, your failures, your reluctance to come to Christ is because you are caught up in this sin and you're trying so hard not to commit this sin that all you're thinking about is this sin. Think about Jesus for goodness sake. Look to Jesus. Tell your, your sins and your fears and your doubts the truth of Jesus. Tell that temptation the truth of Jesus. Because you can't, you're just leaving a vacuum if you stop doing something. Fill it with something better. That's the truth of Jesus Christ. And it's true for every doubt and struggle and temptation. Because Jesus is the answer to our doubts. He welcomes us in the depths of them. He loves us in the midst of them. You can't doubt your way out of, out of the love of Jesus. He didn't die on the cross to run out of love for you. God didn't so love the world to a point. He so loved the world that he sent his son to die for you. So in the midst of your doubts, when you feel unlovable, tell your doubts the truth of the work of Jesus Christ. He works through our doubts for our good to give us a deeper and stronger and happier faith in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we believe we believe what you say about who you are. We believe the work of your son. We believe every word of your scriptures. Even when we struggle to understand them, we know that they're true. We believe in the presence of your Holy Spirit and every believer holding us tight, guiding us, convicting us, teaching us, helping us. And we need help with our unbelief. It's constant. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Our hearts pull us away from you, so help our unbelief. And I lift up this morning particularly those who feel like they are beyond your love. Like they cannot work their way back around to you. Would you go get them? Would you help them to take the step that the Father in this text took and put themselves and their needs and their helplessness at your feet with no confidence whatsoever, just the willingness to let you work and then do the work, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.